Hello everyone, I'm Petta Vernon. Thank you for joining me here on Mostly Essays, where we review mostly essays. Uh, today uh, will be a novel of new essays by a collection of essays uh, edited by Carl Wilson. It's entitled, Let's Talk About Love and Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. It has great reviews, mostly brilliant, uh, said by Alex Ross, author of The Rest is Noise. We also have reviews from lead singer of The Weaker Thangs, John K. Samson, who says he, Carl Wilson, describes him as a profound listener and an extraordinary writer. Jonathan, uh, the author of Fortress of Solitude and the Ecstasy of Influence, describes Carl Wilson's book as he's a fan. Let's Talk About Love is absolutely hilarious, incredibly insightful, and told with a great aplop. It's fantastic stuff by turns, hilarious and heartwarming, says Dave Stelfox of The Guardian UK. So we'll jump right into an excerpt from the essay entitled, Let's Talk About Taste. In one landmark essay of the standard of taste, David Huma describes, this is back in 1757, describes a tasteful person in terms that seem intuitively right. Open quotations, strong sense united to delicate sentiment, improved by practice, perfected by comparison, and cleared of all prejudice, can alone entitle critics to this valuable character. And the joint verdict of such, wherever they are to be found, is the true standard of taste and beauty. But that's a job description for critics, not a standard of taste. For that, humor can only appeal to authority. The tasteful person will give appropriation to works that stands the test of time. The works still approved by tasteful people later. It's tautological survival of the fittest views that's no help in in resolving quarrels of taste in our own lifetimes. His stipulation that the critic be credentialed with wide knowledge and experience could itself be described as a prejudice, a bias in favor of tradition, which may punish deviation from the highest standards and obstruct the creations of new ones. Exactly this kind of prejudice kept most high culture of Brahmins from accepting pop music or film as art at all until the 1960s. Humor acknowledges the need for artistic change, but he underestimates how determinedly his elite of taste aristocratic aristocrats could resist it, would resist it. The demand to be at once expert and unbiased is enough of a paradox that you could say Hume's ideal critic by definition cannot exist. Aesthetic philosophies, philosophies, other great granddaddies, Immanuel Kant, his third critique entitled The Critique of Judgment back in 1790, like Hume's essay, begins with the, from the dilemma that people can disagree on what is beautiful. But the parts of the third critique that dazzle are its liminings of 
the nature of beauty and of the sublime and its subtle subtly kinetic account of how reason imagination and perception interact in free play to produce aesthetic judgment kant seems almost to to intuit two centuries in advance how disparate chambers of the brain light up simultaneously when we listen to music as recounted in libertine's book when he tries to account for how these processes produce opposing judgments however can falls back on a fantasy that there is a sensus communis uh, meaning a common sense of beauty that would generate a consensus if only there were ideal conditions including ample education leisure etc aesthetic agreement only eludes us because circumstances distort some people's perceptions a modern reader can't help noticing that kant's ideal con- conditions suspiciously resemble being an educated 18th century gentleman in cultured Königsberg. This common sense is not only unconvincing from a contemporary diversity-oriented viewpoint, it doesn't even sound desirable. But some of his insights still seem crucial. Kind was the first to say this aesthetic judgment are by nature unprovable. They can't be reduced to logic. Nevertheless, he pointed out, they always feel necessary and universal. When we think something's great, we want everyone else to think it's great too. Not long after Kant and Hume, whose contributions were only the weightiest in a more widespread dispute, the, the veracity of taste was largely put on the philosophical shelf, the man of taste, tending to become a caricature, a figure out of Malia or Oscar Wilde, the dandy who lavishes more care on niceties of form and style than on deeper values. In fact, the cliché and portrait of such a character was drawn even in the thick of the Enlightenment in, in Dennis's uh, Diderot's extraordinary Ramu's nephew. Many writers, Nietzsche among them, were have lambasted, lambasted Kant in particular for saying the appreciator of beauty must be disinterested adopting a personal distance from the origins, the content, and the implications, the meaning, if you will, of the work of art. The great American art critic, Clement Greenberg, one of the rare late thinkers to take up the question, suggested that romantic ideology raised art to such a sacred status in the 19th century that it seems seemed goche to call attention to the process of evaluating it. Following Kant, Greenberg offered brilliant descriptions of the mental switch that is flipped when we regard something aesthetically, as we can do with anything, he argued, not just art, by contemplating an object or a scene or person as an end in itself, apart from any other role or use, echoing Kant's definition of beauty as purposiveness without purpose. Greenberg was also lucid on Kant's insinuation that to enjoy art is also to judge it. You like it because it gives pleasure, but it can't give you pleasure if you don't like it. Greensburg's answer to taste conflict, however, was the same as Huma's. We know there is objective taste because over time a consensus is reached on the great works of the past. 
never mind that anything ruled out by previous generations consensuses probably lost and unlikely to come messing with the current consent the current consensus the most objective taste in the present he said belongs to those who know that canon deeply but are also open to novelty which surprise surprise sounds a lot like clement greenberg although his openness seemed to ebb by the mid 1960s when he began thrashing new art movements as a decline from the modernism on which he'd made his critical reputation a vivid case of the contradiction between modernism and flexibility and that's not even to many that's probably modernism and that's not even to mention his dismissal of mass culture as first kitsch and later middlebrow either way the enemy of genuine culture rather than by science or philosophy the story of how aesthetic judgment reached the crisis felt by kumara milimed is best understood as a product of western art itself to oversimplify wantonly the disenchantment begins with the serving or severing of visual art and music in particular from their religious role in which the church and rhetorically god is the ultimate art critic after the enlightenment art gradually moves from an aristocratic status to a bourgeois, bourgeois one the romantics in reaction celebrate artistic genius as an autom- autonomous agent of revelation proudly outside society and modernism gives that outsider status a harder edge artists mission becomes not just to revel higher truth but also to attack social falsehood the very idea of beauty becomes a second rate cap- cap- capitulation to bourgeois values now ugliness obscenity formlessness and randomness all can be in the best of taste innovation becomes the yardstick as artists continually attempt to outpace taste to violate its terms or render it render it irrelevant the belief is that to bring about a higher consciousness it's necessary necessary not only just to delight with newness but also to mount a shock attack on the old bourgeois decadent consciousness as critic Bor- Boris Gross puts it Gross puts it now it is not the observer who judges the artwork but the artwork that judges and often condemns its public the motivations are varied for some it's psychoanalysis psychoanalysis inspired faith in the irrational and for others it is the revolutionary politics or plain misanthropy for most it's just what bohemians do and improbably they succeed not that taste comes to an end but the expectation of consensus withers the most powerful vehicle for that alliance is mass culture pop songs and movies and genre fiction and magazines are so appealing achieve so much aesthetically for so many people that snobbery cannot hold the line against them with pop art camp aesthetics and rock and roll the notions of highbrow middlebrow and lowbrow which from nearly the dawn of mass culture dominated discussions of taste see historian Michael Kamen's book entitled American Culture American Taste starts to fall apart 
by the early by the early 21st century almost no one believes in them among artists themselves the continual process of violating limits seem to reach an end point or at least exhaustion and anything goes eclecticism takes its place critic and philosopher author dantel calls this the end of art history or post art among audiences a growing fragmentation or subculturalization accomplishes similar ends through indie rock and classical listeners science fiction fans and architecture buffs rockabilly swing kids hip hop heads and salsa dancers may believe strongly in their own taste in aggregate they are acclimatized in the to the notion that separate taste worlds can coexist peacefully without need for external official inspection and variation while film critics usually make the case made the case that film deserved appreciation on par with high art rock criticism began with a more radical stance against elite taste arguing arguing no work was too humble for aesthetic contemplation that the form's most low or impure qualities could be its strengths as the field grew the that attitude was watered down and some writers reintroduced traditional hierarchies and ups- updated forms a rough idea of a pop rock canon begins to coalesce in books like the rolling stone record guides and other fans and critics especially after punk adopted a harsh line on selling out to an entertainment industry that like greenberg or journal before them they considered a capitalist scheme to frost brainless product on a beclouded public and so on the debates over rockinism and popism are symptoms of present unease about standards and subjectivism as is of course this book but the mandate to dethrone taste orthodoxies remain part of pop criticism's legacy so much so that it may bring it bring its own extinction within what more than one writer has called no brow culture one needs professional cri- who needs who needs professional critics what do they offer if not objectivity the one bothersome matter in this anarchy taste universe a utopia or dystopia dependent on your ideology but one that cannot be wished away is the persistence of a mainstream what greenberg or his contemporary dwight macdonald would have called middlebrow culture the politely domineering realm where Celine Dion is queen unattached to any validating subculture middlebrow is the new lowbrow mainstream taste the only taste for which you still have to say you're sorry and there taste seems less an aesthetic question than again a social one among the thousands of varieties of aesthetics and geeks and hobbyists each with their special order cultural diet the abiding mystery of mainstream culture is who the hell are those people but perhaps comer and millimed are right the way to the heart of taste today may be through a pole